0: All right, let's have a word of prayer as I start taking your Bibles and turning to Hebrews chapter 10. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, as I approach the Word of God and and preach Your Word, I pray, Lord, that Your Word would be met by the power of Your Spirit, that You would drive home to our hearts the truths contained therein. For, Lord, You put it there for us, and You want us to know it. And I do thank you, Lord, also that in Scripture, the Word of God does tell us that one would hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps a good man someone would even dare to die. But, Lord, you demonstrated your own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you, Lord, that you died for the unjust, the ungodly, the unholy, the sinner. Uh, That means we all qualify. And Lord, we praise you for that. Help us to continue to grow deeply in our faith so we would not waver or have doubt too long before the word of God clears things up. And I pray, Lord, that you would establish us again in the truth of the great sufficiency of the sacrifice of Christ, both now and forever. And I pray this in your name. Amen. All right, let's take our Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. And as you turn there, I just want to set up what is where I left off there. It's been a little bit of time since I've been uh, in Hebrews at least one week. Um, But the last time I was there in Hebrews, we ended with the thought that Christ's sacrifice was necessary and superior because... It is the only sacrifice that consummates everything. It's the only sacrifice that brings everything to a conclusion. It's like you start a book, you want to finish the book and come to the end, right? You want the book to go on and on and on and on because you lose track somewhere down the line. Well, the Lord's sacrifice did that. There was a a very significant phrase found in chapter 9. Look at verse number 26. It says, otherwise he would have needed to suffer uh, often since the foundation of the world, but now once at the consummation of the ages. There's that phrase. The consummation of the ages means the completion of the age. It meant that all the past ages of the world, all of world history, if I may say it like that, have come to their joint goal to which God intended them to come in the light of the person of Jesus Christ. Now, the Scripture goes on to explain that more, because it says that the Lord came once, the first time, but He's coming a second time. But God had a goal for the first coming, and of course, the goal of the first coming is found in chapter 9, verse 26, and it's simply this. The purpose of His appearing the first time was to put away sin. That's why He came. It says, He has been manifest to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And then what did He do? He appeared in heaven, seated face to face with the Father for us. And then in heaven, He began, remember, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, right? That's what the Lord promised His disciples. So He was preparing for the second coming, and He's still preparing for the second coming, even now, Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And what is He doing? He's preparing to come again. And so, between, in, be, in between the first and the second comings, we still experience, though, the effects of sin because we're born in this world. And we will eventually go the way of death. But, of course, the Lord has taken care of and defeated death for us and uh, greatest enemy that we have is death and Satan and of course he has taken care of those things and of course in Romans excuse me in Hebrews 9 27 that verse we always use and in as much as it is appointed for men to die once all right, and then of course that's what we're appointed to do uh, to die once but remember uh, when we think about that after that comes the judgment so God's verdict of acquittal could be heaven or his verdict of condemnation could be hell. And the Bible never speaks about a place called purgatory, ever. That is not anywhere in biblical theology. So there's either one or two. And it's always like heaven or hell, uh, light or darkness, uh, God's way and every other way. So it's it's specific here in Scripture for those who have been bought by the blood of christ the throne of judgment has been changed to the throne of mercy isn't that great when you come to the the lord and you believe in the lord uh that his throne of judgment what was against you is now changed it's reversed it's now god has nothing but mercy on his kids nothing but grace on his kids he he lavishes grace on his kids that's how the bible describes it but for those who have not and did not come, and do not come to Christ, after they die, are ushered into the throne of judgment. So see, the first com- coming has taken care of everything, and that's what we're still preaching. We're, I'm preaching the effects and the purpose of the first coming, for God to take away your sin, nail your sin to the cross, and for God Himself to give you, not your righteousness, you have none, but His own righteousness, which makes you acceptable to the Father, And now you become the beloved of God and can enter into God's presence. Why? Based on everything Christ did for you on the cross. But the Bible speaks of something else. Verse number 28 of chapter 9, just by way of background, So Christ, also having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation, without reference to sin, to those who eagerly await him. So here... Hebrews brings up the second coming. He will appear a second time. Will he do that? How do we know God will do it? Because he did it the first time. Why wouldn't he do the same thing? He came the first time. He's coming again. All right? So we can, we can uh, rest assured that God tells us the truth. He's coming again. But why is he coming? Here's the purpose. He's coming for salvation. Now, wh- wait, wait a minute. I-, I thought he came the first time for salvation, but look what it says without reference to sin. So see, it's not in reference to shedding blood or sacrificial death as a substitute for sinners or fulfilling all those shadows and types. He fulfilled all those. All these have reference to sin and His finished work. No, He will appear a second time to fulfill His new covenant promise. Alright? To come and get us To finish our salvation. To glorify us. All he foreknew, he predestined. All he predestined, he called. All he called, he justified. And all he justified, he what? He glorified. Right? So Christ comes a second time for his children to utterly complete their salvation. Because remember, we have the promise of the resurrection. Right? That... What's really keeping us from God's presence is our own bodies, our own mortality, that uh, we are held back here by our bodies. And so someday we're going to have a new body to be able to spend time with the Lord forever and ever and ever. So this is our when our salvation will be forever completed by God. Remember, God brings everything to consum- consummation. But... It, It's interesting how the writer of Hebrews, actually the preacher of Hebrews, mentions this in verse number uh, 28, where he says he comes a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who what? Eagerly await him. Uh, This is all part of the covenant promise that God's people desire his presence. God's people living on the earth are living in anticipation of His coming. At least they're supposed to do that. God, God's people who, who know Christ as their Lord and Savior, isn't that how we're supposed to live? In anticipation of Christ's coming. Right? We're, and to do it eagerly. Wanting in our heart for the Lord to come. As Jeremiah 31 tells us, I will put my law within them, And on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. See, the New Covenant people will obey God because they want to. Because they have been given the ability to obey and the power to obey by the Spirit of God. They want Christ to come. They want to be with him. I don't know if I meet many Christians who have that eagerness. And maybe it's because they're really not learning what it says in the Bible. They're not learning the Bible. They're not learning what God says about himself in Scripture. Because when you do, God, truth sanctifies you. It sets you apart from all other ways of thinking, even from your old way of thinking. And it makes you think in a way like God wants you to think, actually. So I can know what God's will is. I can know what God's plan is. I know what God's going to do. I know that. I don't, I'm not in doubt about it. Why? It says it right here in Scripture. And so, these verses lead up to chapter 10, which now emphasizes the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. Meaning that everything else was and is and will Forever be deficient, subpar when compared with Christ's sacrifice of himself on the cross for salvation. Now, if you didn't get it by now, Hebrews is a Christocentric book. Is it not? It's about Christ, and Christ is right in the middle, right in the center. If you miss the point that Christ is the one you must come to for salvation, then you've missed it. So there's two things that help us understand the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. And here's the first one, found in verse 1 through 3. But I want to look at some of the details here in verse number 1. And here it is, that Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient because it is the reality of the shadow say well what do you mean by that well there's two things i mean by that the first one is that the law was never able to bring someone to the goal or save them completely and bring them into a right relationship and a continual relationship with god it was never able to do that it was never designed by god to do that all right so the mosaic law look at verse number one for the law since it was only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things. All right, let me just stop there for a minute. So it, it is the Mosaic law with its sacrificial system. It was only a nebulous shadow, a mere silhouette, a form without reality. That's what it was. And that's what it's telling us here in Scripture, that the law was since it was only a shadow. It was a pale outline cast by an object, which is the reality. Now, the recommended cure to provide for people's sin was deficient. That's what the Bible is saying. It was deficient to bring a person in close fellowship with God. The only thing it could do is to offer a distant relationship with God. Look at in the Old Testament. You had to have the camp set up. You had to have the tabernacle with the fence around it. You had to have the tabernacle with, with the two rooms, with which you had the Holy and the Holy of Holies. And the only one who can go in that room, uh, the Holy of Holies, once a year, is the high priest. And the people were on the outside. They could not get close to God. Right, that was always the picture in the Old Testament. That listen, they could only have a distant and irregular contact or relationship with God. Yet, the shadow of the law and the sacrificial system—they were not valueless. And for this reason, because if there is a shadow, then there is a real object which casts the shadow. Right if I see a shadow of a dog on the wall, well, the shadow itself cannot hurt me, but I know that the light is being shined on that object which is casting the shadow. So, see, there's a real object when there's a shadow. There's a real form when there is a shadow. And so, see, a real object which casts that shadow, which also means that the reality is not very far away. So the shadow has value Because it is connected with substance and with promise. Not only is it the substance that casts the shadow, but it's the promise that goes with it from the Old Testament that the Lord would do this thing. So when the shadow drops away, then the substance or the reality will be revealed. And you see the true And the detailed picture of the sacrifice that God would provide is Jesus Christ. So, in other words, Jesus Christ is the reality. He is the one who casts the shadow. So, when it came to the law, when it came to the sacrificial system, what was that? That was the shadow of the reality, which was always Christ, right? And we saw that dimly. We didn't see that clearly in the Old Testament, though the prophets kept prophesying it over and over and over. So, see, the law was never able to bring someone to full salvation, to the goal. It was never able to do that, and it was never designed to do that. So don't get that wrong. There was nothing wrong with the law. Nothing wrong with God's plan. That's the way God planned it. But remember... God didn't start with John chapter one and or John chapter three sixteen. He started with Genesis chapter one, didn't he? And he he built his revelation historically, so everything is established. The whole plan of redemption is is unfolded as you read the Old Testament. If you've been reading through your Bible, you should be coming now to the end, November and the beginning of December. Uh, and some that you're in, you should be in Daniel in the Old Testament now, and then in the Psalms, and then. It's just a, You can see every year as you read through it that God has revealed his plan to us. He didn't keep anything back from us. He's, it's there right in the word of God. We just got to read it, study it, and give ourselves to it. But there's a second thing that the sacrificial system was never able to bring to completeness either. Look at what it says in verse number one. It says, For the law, since it it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. So, this is what it's saying here. Two things, actually. That these sacrifices that the people brought, and believe me, those sacrifices were required by God for them to bring, so they can approach God, right? They were all required. But these sacrifices, number one, it says right in Scripture, had no ability. That means, I could say it this way, can never. In other words, it had no effectiveness to bring someone to complete salvation. And remember this, a genuinely effective thing does not need to be repeated. Repetition is proof that there remains a deficiency. That's why the offerings had to come day by day and month by month and year by year. And you had the burnt offering and the peace offerings and the voluntary offerings and the sin offerings. All had to be brought to God over and over again. So the repetition shows that it was not something that was designed to bring someone to a complete and a, a relationship with God. A second thing it says there in verse number 1, that it had no ability, look at the, look at the last part of verse number 1, it had no ability to, to make perfect those who drew, draw near. So that means this, everyone who came to worship God, everyone who came to worship God, they could never get their souls purified. They could never get their souls purified. Now, here's an interesting point in Scripture. If the law and its sacrificial systems were able, able, were were effective to do that, were effective to purify people's souls, two things would have happened. Here's the first thing that would have happened. In verse number 2, it says this, that the sacrifices would have stopped. They would have stopped dead. Boom. Look what it says. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Verse number 2, chapter 10 of Hebrews. All right, so if these were the law and the sacrifice, if, were, if they were supposed to do, if they were designed to do with the, with what people would hope they would have done, then all the sacrifices would have stopped. We wouldn't have to have priests, priests offer sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. A second thing that would happen if these were effective, was number two, in verse number two, that the worshipers, those who came continually to worship, would have no more consciousness or sense of sin. Look what it says. Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would have no longer have had consciousness of sin. See, it's saying there, listen, that if these were effective... That they wouldn't be guilty of their sins. They wouldn't be guilt ridden. They wouldn't have a consciousness of all the sins they have committed. All right? So that means this every time the Israelite, even according to God's prescribed method, went and offered sacrifice to approach God because they wanted to worship Him, they walked away with still guilt in their heart. They walked away knowing that they were not completely purified. All that they were made was ceremonially clean to approach God at that particular point, not to be able to live with God forever in His holy presence. So, these sacrifices did have a particular ability, though. And this is what it tells us here in verse number 3. What was it? Here's the ability it did have. Look at what it says. But... In those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year after year. So this is what the law and the sacrificial system had the ability to do for people. Remind you, you're a sinner. Remind you, you're a sinner. All they do is remind of sin. Remind the worshiper that he or she is not purified. That he or she's, his or her sins still stand between him or her and God. They could never get farther than the next year's sacrifice. That the day of atonement brings the conscious reminder of sin. So scripture has just established for us the inability of the law and its prescribed sacrifices to reach God's intended goal for all his children. Now, that has to be clear for people. Matter of fact, that has to be real clear for the Jew. Especially those still involved with the sacrificial system. And even those today, who are looking forward to the sacrificial system being reinstituted. So that means this. It means that there must be a far different, vastly superior sacrifice that would be needed to make someone walk away knowing that they're purified in their heart from all their sin, and that the sacrificial system would stop forever. Those things have to be happening if it's a, what the Bible teaches. So, see, animal sacrifices could only cover the Israelites' sin, which then gave them the ceremonial cleansing they needed to approach God and worship. But Israel's sin remained. Why? Because there is a great impossibility. A great impossibility. Now, I just said to you, listen, that Christ's sacrifice is sufficient because it is the reality that Jesus Christ is the reality of the shadow. But secondly, the second thing that helps us understand the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice is this. That Christ's sacrifice is sufficient because it moves the impossible to the possible so what is this great impossibility look at verse 4 we use it all the time don't we for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin that word impossible it's kind of like one of those final words you know there's not much you can do with it except say it's impossible <laughs> And so that's what's going on here. It's impossible for what? For the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. See, if it was possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin, then we wouldn't have a problem. All right? But, see, it's not possible. These cannot take away as serious and deadly a thing as sin before a holy God. They cannot completely appease and atone for sin. All they can do, and this is all they're meant to do, is to cast a shadow. The reality of the shadow is what? Better blood. Blood that connects the worshiper with the Messiah's blood through faith in Christ. Now, brethren, here is something to think about especially when you think about this word impossible. And what I mean is this. If God's Old Testament prescribed system for approaching him, in the law and then also in the offering of sacrifices, could not, wasn't possible, as it says here, to take away sins, then if it wasn't possible... For this divinely prescribed system, even though it was a shadow to save, it is more so impossible for any other man-made, invented religious system to save or even to provide any value or to point definitively and clearly to God's distinctive revelation in Christ And his single sacrifice for sins in which men and women, that's God's children, can be saved immediately and forever. In other words, eternal life cannot be found outside of Christ. Now, what does that have to do for us today besides the theological stuff? Well, I have to warn you that there is an ever-growing mindset that we all live in called pluralism. Theologian Don Carson defines pluralism as, I quote, the view that all religions have the same moral and spiritual value and offer the same potential for achieving salvation However, salvation be construed, in other words, however, salvation would be defined by that particular system. The, poor, the, pure, uh, the pluralist question is this Is the work of Christ necessary for salvation? Or are there other bases? That's the mindset in which we live in. The pluralists believe that Jesus is the provision that God has made for Christians. But there are other ways to getting right with God and gaining eternal bliss in other religions. You ever hear that before? That's where we live, don't we? We live right there. And see, the problem is is that part of evangelicalism is already believing that. And they're already embracing people who do not have a clear testimony of their salvation and really are setting aside the sufficiency of Christ for gaining approval, the approval of men, that the work of Christ they say is useful for Christians, but not necessary for non-Christians. See, this is why it is important to study a book like Hebrews. That scripture strongly presses upon us the impossibility of eternal salvation outside of Christ. It is just as impossible for a Muslim to achieve his salvation by the five pillars of Muslim or Islam or a Hindu by resolutions of renunciation or by Buddhist ethics or by Sikhs patterns of self-salvation or Catholicism's system of obtaining inherent righteousness by keeping the sacraments. So then, it cannot possibly be that though his death was necessary for the salvation of some, most could equally attain it by other means. May that never be for us as believers that all Scripture affirms that the work of Christ is the only necessary means provided by God for eternal salvation for all people in all religions for all times and in all cultures. There is no other way but Christ. And that's what this book is establishing for the Jew who wanted to go back to the system of Judaism. That somehow that religious system has something in it that could save them. And it's saying in the book of Hebrews here, no, that listen, Christ is the only way to be saved, not only for you Jews, but for Gentiles and every other person who lives on the face of this earth who will ever be made right with God, it has to be through Christ. There, there just is no other way. And yet, students go into college classrooms, they would go into high school classrooms, they go into grammar schools, and what do they hear? They hear all religions are the same. They're all leading to the same path in their, their own way, and they all lead to God. Wrong. No wrong. There's only one that leads to God, and that's Christ Jesus. And I don't call that a religion. I call that a relationship, right? Now, the thing is is that, is that exclusive? Is that narrow? Yes, it is. Does it get people mad and upset? Yes. But it's the truth. It's the only thing that can save people. Christ is the only one who could save people. Now, For your information, this next section of Scripture, in verse number 6 through 9, the author is quoting from the Septuagint. Now remember, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And he's quoting Isaiah 40, verse 6 through 9, and he's stressing this very point. He's driving this very point home. And the point he is making here is, in Isaiah 40, is the only effective, the only sufficient sacrifice is Jesus Christ. And from Scripture, this has always been God's plan and purpose. Now, what do I mean? Well, from this passage of Scripture, if you look right here, it's quoted right here in in Hebrews chapter uh, 10. First of all, it was never God the Father's will for animal sacrifices to remove sin. Look what it says in verse number 5 of chapter 10. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And then in verse 6, In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have taken no pleasure. Verse 8, After saying... Above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for for sin, you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them. And then notice what it says in parentheses, which are offered according to the law. So the Word of God is saying here, listen, it it was never God the Father's will for animal sacrifices to remove sin. Matter of fact, God the Father never had pleasure in them. In this sense, they didn't bring people to a full relationship with himself. That's why he had no desire or pleasure in them. And in fact, Scripture often records that sacrifices often degenerated into something that God never intended or never wanted. There's a, a, a great passage of Scripture in um, Isaiah chapter 1. like, I want you to turn there for a minute. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11 through 14. But as you're turning there, let me just mention David, even in Psalm 51. Remember after he sinned, uh, the sin against God, and he sent Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, to the ho- hottest part of battle. He got killed, and of course he committed adultery with Bathsheba. And he writes this in Psalm 51. He says, For you do not desi- delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. But look at Isaiah one in verse 11. Look what it says, "What are your multiplied sacrifices to me?" says the Lord. I have had enough." of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Verse 12, when you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the Asylum Assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feast. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Why? Because the people went through the ritual of the system without obedience in the heart to love God. That's why. And God hates that. God hates fakes. He hates hypocrites. He hates people to just go through the motions, just talk to talk. But they don't ever desire in their heart to really obey God, really want to love him. That's what God's looking for. So see, this is what these things could not do to the human heart. It took someone greater to cleanse the heart completely To put the Spirit of God in us so that we can worship God with heart, with desire, with will, with obedience, with sincerity. We can approach God. Now, why then did God establish the elaborate sacrificial system if animal sacrifices could not remove sin? That's the question I had. Well, there's several... Things that uh, David Levy, a Jew, a converted Jew, Messianic Jew, brought up. I thought they were very good, and he said this. Number one, blood sacrifices made the Israelites acknowledge their need for atonement before God. They, they always had that understanding. Listen, whatever happens, there's got to be a sacrifice. Secondly, the sacrifices forced them to admit another Someone else must make substitutionary atonement for them. They could not atone for their own sin. They could not save themselves. Someone else had to do it for them. So this idea of substitution was in their mind. Great idea. All throughout the scripture, right? Third thing, sacrifice which originated in the mind of God enables people to have their sins covered before approaching Him in worship, at least temporarily. And then, fourthly, sacrifices pointed to the day when Christ would once for all atone for its sin. Remember, these sacrifices and the law were a shadow for what will come. The reality is coming, and the reality has come, and the reality is Jesus Christ. So in Jesus Christ, we can have full and final and complete salvation, Now, I said, first of all, that it was never the Father's will for animal sacrifice to remove sin. But secondly, in this psalm, it was always the Father's will that the Son become the true sacrifice for sin. Look at verse 7 of Hebrews 10. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. What is it written? To do your will O God, verse 5, but a body you have prepared for me. Now, if you notice, the Word of God is talking about this is one of those messianic Psalms. It says, Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book, it is written of me. Jesus is talking about the Word of God being written about who? Him. The Psalms, the Old Testament. Remember, Moses, the Psalms, are written about him. Everything in the Word of God is written about Christ. All right, so therefore, what I'm saying is that it's the Father's will that the Son would always be the sacrifice. Look what it says in verse 5. But a body, a body you have prepared for me. Jesus Christ was being prepared to be the sacrifice for sin. It's always been in Scripture. That way, and then a third and a final thing is that Christ was willing to do all the father's will, and this is what's this is what others were never able to do and that 's this to completely obey the Father in every single detail, all the minutia to completely obey the Father. see Christ was willing to do all the father's will, verse seven. It says this, Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. And then in verse number 9, Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. And then he says this, He takes away the first in order to establish the second. What does he mean by that? He means, listen, the demise of the Levitical sacrificial system. He sets the shadows aside. Because Jesus Christ becomes the reality. And he becomes the reality in which way? He dies in his body on the cross, having completely obeyed the Father in every single detail to bring about your and my salvation and the salvation of everyone who will come and live for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, That means two things. That if Jesus' sacrifice was what the word of God said, it would be two things have to happen. Number one, sacrifices must stop. And secondly, the removal of guilt of the worshipers who approach God. Don't you have those both things happening? Is there any sacrificial system today? What happened to it? 70 AD. stopped. Did it ever come back again? No. Why? Because it can't. In reality, it can't in the sense of scripture, because if you notice in verse number 10, what it says, by this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. That once for all means an end to every, all the sacrifices, but at the same time, it's able to sanctify the worshiper. To set them apart. That God wants obedience to His will. Loving, willful obedience is the only true sacrifice. So when Jesus was the perfect sacrifice because He perfectly did the Father's will, and by it, Jesus brought purified sinners into a continual relationship with God, as it says in our scripture here, he sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, setting aside and fulfilling the law, fulfilling all the types and shadows and pictures of the sacrificial system, and then ended it. It's not needed anymore. He ended it. And it is ended. But, you know, it does say something about you and I. That when we look at the cross, when we look at the cross, we should not linger thinking about our sins. We ought to confess our sins, but not linger on our sins for this reason. We should linger upon Christ. We should linger upon his substitute in our behalf. We should linger upon how he made you and I righteous by his death. See, we need to be thinking on those things. You think too long upon your own sin, and it drags you right down to the pit. Right? But if I take my sin... Give it to Christ. He died for it already. It's taken care of already. I I can walk away in my conscience purified. That's why Paul freaked the Jews out when he says, listen, in my conscience, I'm clear. It's clear in my... It freaked them out. What do you mean? How can anybody be clear in their conscience? Because he understood the sacrifice of Christ. That Christ has cleansed you from every bit of sin. Yesterday, today, and the sin I'll commit tomorrow is under Christ. Now, Never in Scripture. A matter of fact, in Scripture it says that if you think you can go on and sin and everything's all right, I may mean, that never be. Right? Because a habitual sinner shows the seed of God not even in them. They're not even a believer. But a, a, a Christian, someone who's come to, a follower of Jesus Christ, a follower of Esau, a follower of Messiah, can every day of their life walk around knowing they're purified in their conscience. Guilt-free. Wow. Do you live like that? I know there's enough things to make us guilty about things. And believe me, the Holy Spirit of God truly makes us guilty about things. But we don't stay there. We go immediately to the cross. We live in light of the cross. And we confess that sin and get up. What does it say in First John? That he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin. And what? Cleanse you from all your unrighteousness. Meaning this. That there may be some things you missed. And the blood of Christ taking care of that too. Right? Because of our leaky brains. Because we can't, can't retain anything. And the older you get, the less you retain, It seems. Or whatever goes in get, leaves faster than, doesn't stay there long. At least that's the way I'm finding it to be. I'm fighting. I'm saying, Lord, please let me remember. Let me remember. Let me not forget what I already know. And then when I need to say it to somebody, give me the ability to say it. So, see, everything stops the sacrificial system. Why? Because there was a one sacrificed Jesus Christ for your sin on the cross and everything ended there. So I don't have to go anywhere else. I can't go anywhere else. And then I can live a life of being guilt-free. And the sense of my sin, the consciousness of my sin, I don't have to walk around with all day and night. But I walk around with the thought that, yes, I'm a sinner. And I'm a great sinner. But Christ is a great Savior. He's a great Savior, and he's taking care of everything for us. So how do you want to live, you know? Christ's sacrifice is definitely uh, sufficient now and forever. And if you have not yet received Christ, well, really just the opposite is true for you. You have no sacrificial substitute. The consciousness of your sin and your guilt remain. And you'll be responsible to bear the penalty of your own sin. Why do you want to do that when Christ died for you? Why do you want to do that when Christ is the substitute, when he demonstrates his love towards you on the cross and he says, I die for the ungodly? If you fit the category of the ungodly, the unrighteous, the sinner, then come and believe and be freed for once in your conscience and your soul and know that you have a relationship with God and that there's nothing you could have done to improve it, to make it better. There's nothing you could add even now to it. It is finished. It is complete. It is forever. I come humbly with gratitude I serve God because of what he has done for a sinner like me. I come with gratitude. I serve with gratitude. You serve with gratitude, right? That's the only way to serve. And see, there it comes, that Christ's obedience is worked in us by the Spirit of God, that we are obedient to him and want to be. And so, see, the more you grow in Christ, the more you want heaven. The more you in, grow in Christ, the more eager, eager you are for him to come. The more you grow in Christ, the more you see how sin abounds in the world and how how dark the world is when it comes to sin. And the more you think about that, the more you're compelled in your heart to tell the people around you that they need Jesus Christ and to actually communicate that to them. So this morning in Scripture, it it really establishes for us that there is really no place to go but Christ, but there's no other place you want to go. So if you haven't come to Christ, come. And if you have come to Christ, serve him with a loving, obedient heart. And do it all the time. And believe me, confess your sin, repent of your sin, and follow Christ. Don't get stuck on your sin, but get stuck on the sacrificing of Christ in your behalf. And all the implications that has for your personal life every day. And believe me, you live there then you will maintain your joy and you will maintain your boldness for Christ, right? Because not, it's not about you, it's all about God, right? That's where your boldness comes from. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for your people. I thank you, Lord, for your gospel. I know, Lord, that in it is contained everything for life and godliness. And Lord, just with a passage of scripture like this, we say we see again the awesomeness of your plan of redemption. And thank you, Lord, that many of us here have become the recipients of that sacrifice. And we feel its benefits every day. I just pray, Lord, that you would continue to give us strength to be sanctified by your word. And Lord, continue... To enable us to serve you with a willful, joyful heart. And Lord, for those who don't know you, that they may come soon, even today, to confess you as their own Lord and Savior and believe in you. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together.